Shumpert trying to stay with Curry. Catches one dribble, steps back, puts up a three. Won't go. Rebound tip taken by Spades. Final seconds. It's over. It's over. Cleveland is a city of champions once again. The Cavaliers are NBA champions. Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 48 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Dolores Lozano. Jeremy Paxton is off fjording in uh, Scandinavia right now, so he'll join us in July when he returns back to the U.S., but uh, we actually have a great episode in store for you today. We have great interviews with John McClain, Matt Weston, and Adam Wexler. We're going to dive into everything from Texans to Rockets to Astros. I think you're going to really enjoy that content, but before we actually dive into that, I want to go ahead and play some audio from last week's podcast. We're going to be the Associated Press here. We're going ahead and projecting that the Golden State Warriors are going to win the 2015-2016 NBA championship for the second straight year. Congratulations to Steph Curry for his back-to-back MVPs and uh, the NBA title. So that audio that you just heard was from last week's episode in which we pre-recorded prior to Game 5 of the NBA championship, uh, in which uh, we assumed that the way the series was going, that the Golden State Warriors were going to close it out in five and win back-to-back NBA championships. And for clarification, we are recording this episode after Game 7 of the NBA Finals, in which, surprise... Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors did not win back-to-back championships. In fact, we've joked a lot on this show about how our predictions are so grossly wrong, and I was certainly wrong on this one. I believe we all were. The Cleveland Cavaliers take Game 7 of the NBA Finals by knocking out the Golden State Warriors 93-89. to LeBron James, the unanimous MVP winner, brings a championship back to Cleveland. He played lights out in Game 7, 47 minutes, 9 of 24 from the field, 8 of 10 from the free throw line. He had a triple-double, 11 rebounds, 11 assists, 3 huge blocks, and he finished with 27 points, bringing the championship back to Cleveland. And uh, first impressions from both Kevin and Dolores, I'm curious, what do you think about how everything transpired? Well, I feel similarly about LeBron as I do about Cleveland. I don't really like either of them. I've been to Cleveland. Not a great place. If you live there, I I don't understand why you would, unless it's just home for you. Uh, But it is still nice to see this confluence of events. He comes back home. He promises a championship. He delivers to a city desperately in need of uh, some uplifting. And certainly, judging from the footage we saw there in Cleveland, they look uplifted. And so I was gratified. Uh, I was rooting for the Cavs in this series. I think it's uh, not a woke-up secret. I don't like Golden State. I don't like a lot of their players. Um, Clay Thompson, one of my least favorite guys in the NBA. Dre, uh, Draymond, Draymond Green's up there as well. I mean, two guys I really detest. Not a fan of Steph Curry. Uh, was a pleasure to see him get ejected in Game Six, and uh, we saw more of the same from them this game. Just couldn't, struggled, could not close it out, and uh, seventy-three wins without a championship. What does that mean? When you look at what LeBron James had done for Cleveland, I mean, this is a guy that's been to six straight NBA Finals, uh, two straight with the Cleveland Cavaliers ever since he came back, and I, I'm just kind of. I'm happy for the city of Cleveland. After 52 years, they finally win a championship. And interestingly enough, teams that were down 3-1 to in NBA Finals were 0-32 in terms of winning series. So this is really a historic moment for Cleveland, the city, the NBA, and everything surrounding that. But I, I'm just looking back at uh, Dan Gilbert's letter that he wrote to LeBron and Cleveland fans back in 2010. Uh, he was bitter, to say the least. Quote, I personally guarantee that the Cleveland Cavaliers will win an NBA championship before the self-titled former king wins one. Quote, you can take it to the bank. Well, he was wrong on that. Uh, LeBron won two titles in Miami before coming back to Cleveland. Uh, but he said that it was shocking act of disloyalty from our homegrown, quote, chosen one, sending an opposite message to our children, uh, saying, is this who we want them to grow up to become? So obviously, uh, Dan Gilbert loving LeBron James right now. Dolores, you were actually cheering for Steph Curry during the game, and uh, he didn't play up to his MVP caliber, in my opinion. What were some of your thoughts of the game? Yeah, he definitely didn't come to play today. LeBron LeBron James <laughs> definitely came to play, and it was a little disappointing to see after he was ejected in Game 6. But yeah, he definitely didn't show us that he was the unanimous MVP. He is a frail constitution. Does Steph Curry? Uh, I think he couldn't handle the pressure. How much does Draymond Green being suspended in Game Five 
when Golden State had the opportunity to win that series at home. How much does that play into letting Cleveland back into it, gaining the confidence, and then ultimately winning in Game 7? I would say that it had an impact. Uh, certainly, obviously, gave Cleveland some advantages there, particularly in that game and then momentum you talk about. i got to say, the Kevin Love concussion, though, may have had as much of an impact because Teron Liu really uh, had the courage to mess around with his lineups and play lineups that gave him an advantage against Golden State and really teach Cleveland that they could play Golden State's style of ball against them, which really influenced the rest of the series. So those two events, I think, were pivotal. Obviously, Draymond being out, big deal. Uh, a lot of people were crying that the NBA was rigged. Um, Aisha Curry herself later <laughs> complained about the NBA being rigged as well. There's been a lot of talk about that recently. But uh, but I think the Kevin Love concussion where he had to sit out um, was, was equally impactful and also kind of directed the course of this series i don't agree because kevin love doesn't put as as many points on the board as draymond green i would say that the impact there though was not that he didn't wasn't there to score it was actually that they found out they could play a different style of ball without him richard jefferson took his place in the starting lineup and they played a lot more small ball played a little more up tempo i think lebron james was the the tallest guy for them on the court uh for many stretches of that game and uh and it just impacted the way teron lou was willing to coach and the personnel he was willing to put out on the floor so no losing him was not impactful in a negative way losing him i mean it's kevin love we're talking about losing him is a great thing i'm wondering if dan gilbert is going to give an apology public apology since he had that letter no he's he, he hopes everyone's forgotten about it yeah he's but that did color my enjoyment a little bit i was obviously rooting for cleveland until the moment came when they actually hoisted the championship uh the larry o'brien trophy uh, lebron cried over it in a way that was very reminiscent of some very famous photos of mj uh taken with the first trophy that he won uh, so i think that was kind of a callback there uh whether conscious or unconscious i don't know but uh, but yeah seeing dan gilbert uh, get the trophy first really took some of the joy out of it for me he's kind of a jerk cleveland was plus 19 when Kevin Love was on the floor in Game 7. Uh, you know, he didn't do a ton. He had 14 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 steals, uh, only 9 points. But uh, I do think he was a little bit impactful uh, by some of his uh, defensive abilities, I guess, in, in, in the game. And I, I feel that, uh, to me, one of the surprise guys that I thought really played well was Tristan Thompson. Uh, obviously, giving that huge contract that, uh, that LeBron, the GM, uh, agreed to give him, I thought he played pretty well. Tristan Thompson had 9 points in the game. Uh, he was only plus 2 on the plus minus there. But, yeah, you guys mentioned... Uh, Draymond Green, I mean, he was absolutely lights mm. out. If he was playing on a mission, everyone said that uh, the way S Steph has played in this series and Clay Thompson, they haven't had the best uh, series, if you will. And they said that Draymond Green needed to step up. And he was a guy that uh, had 15 rebounds, nine assists, 32 points. And I believe 23 of those were in the first half. Uh, but ultimately, that wasn't enough to beat LeBron. He was one of the first guys to come over and hug LeBron after they were all gathered on the court there, which I thought was an interesting image. Um, good sportsman. Don't like him anymore, though. He's just a guy that I like to dislike. He is unpleasant to look upon with his flexing and his shouting and just the general demeanor. I don't care for it. So again, the Cleveland Cavaliers win Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Just kind of proving a point that we are terrible at predictions. Uh, Kevin, you actually predicted the Warriors to win in five. I actually said Cleveland was going to win in six. I said Warriors in six. I said I wish I'd had the courage to pick Warriors in five. But at the beginning of the season, I picked the Rockets to win the championship. So that just goes to show. Golden State Warriors, they finished with the best regular season record of all time, going 73-9. and I know there was a lot of debate on whether or not, uh, you know, the, the Bulls teams, the 72-win Bulls teams could uh, beat them in a game. And I, I think it was, you know, different eras. And ultimately, you know, I, I think the Bulls team is probably a little bit better. But uh, the Warriors had to go through a more difficult path in the postseason than I feel Cleveland did. Uh, but one of the things that all three of us were talking about while we were watching the game at the We Dessert Studio was uh, which is actually more disappointing? New England Patriots going 18-1 and and not winning the championship, the Super Bowl that year, or the Golden State Warriors having a historic NBA regular season and not sealing the job, not completing the job on their home floor in Game 7? Well, um, I think there's a difference there. Obviously, you go for perfection. You know, you're talking about one game takes all with the Super Bowl there. You have a perfect season on the line. No one has ever gone 82-0 and and swept all of their final or all of their playoff series. So it's, it's you're comparing different things there. I think perfection versus historic greatness. So in my mind, the Patriots season had the possibility to be, uh, you could never beat that. I mean, there's no way in history you could ever do better than that. You could only hope to tie it. So even, you know, a 73-win season, you can still outperform that in theory. So I think that there was more on the line in terms of history with that uh, potentially perfect Patriots season, and it made it all that much sweeter. Uh, New England, you know, another team that I love to hate on, and it was really satisfying to see them not be able to get that Super Bowl victory. Um, I think going 73-9 and nine is 
and not winning a title is kind of disappointing, especially for the uh, Warriors losing at home. And um, just because everyone was going for – everyone, the majority of the United States was kind of going for the Warriors, in my opinion, because I'm a Warriors fan. <laughs> but um, – and not a lot of people like LeBron. But it is a little disappointing uh, to see the Warriors – lose at home yeah it's just crazy to me to think that the golden state warriors uh, you know when they were down three to one against oklahoma city i think a lot of people believed that oklahoma city and kevin durant uh, they were going to the nba finals and uh, i fully thought so myself and then when golden state stormed back to win that series three games in a row they won 120 to 111 108 to 101 and then 96 to 88 and then they steamrolled cleveland in the first two games of the series you know they're on a hot streak winning five straight games and then it just all falls apart this restores my faith in the nba though because you talk about obviously that team came back from 3-1 deficit in the western conference finals the golden state warriors did uh to make it they seem like a team of destiny the cleveland War, uh, cavaliers were counted out and then they come back from 3-1 i mean it just shows that's what we have seven game series you know uh recently we had the first round was changed from five to seven games i enjoy that i think the seven game series is strong and i love to see uh the parody and the competition there because again it looked all but over we in fact on this show called it over before game five and we're proven wrong so that that gets me excited for the nba and excited to watch these games again congratulations to the cleveland cavaliers and the fans of cleveland for actually getting a championship for the first time in 52 years and as we're watching right now uh, espn sports center live is showing footage of uh, essentially mayhem in the streets of cleveland uh, we've got uh, police we've got smoke we've got uh, just people having a crazy good time so uh, congratulations to the city of cleveland but now uh, in addition to cleveland having a good week we had a pretty good week on iTunes. Is that right? We're going to dive into those reviews a little bit more at the end of the show, but we also want to give a shout out to our sponsor, We Desserts, and we actually watched uh, the NBA Finals over at the We Desserts studio tonight, and uh, We was kind enough to bring us some baked goods, and uh, they actually had these uh, cupcakes, uh, s'more cupcakes that were phenomenal, and I'd highly recommend uh, that if you are interested, if, if you are having a party of any sort, so head over to 3411 Kirby here in Houston, uh, tell Penny and Jen that uh, the Weekly Bruce sent you by and you'll get 10% off. Yeah, if you have any sort of party, any sort of desire, you're going to watch some sports. There's more Major League Baseball, a lot more, in fact, way more than I'd prefer. Then certainly give We a call, and uh, 3411 Kirby's their location. But uh, there's some Uber Eats I think you can order from, or you can ask them about what they might make for your party. They're happy to be creative and artistic with you and figure out the most delicious and beautiful things that you could possibly bring to impress people. Because let's face it, we're all trying to impress people. None of us feel like, uh, you know, like we all feel like frauds. We all want to impress people and make them think that we're better. And they can do that. They can make you seem better than you are. So that's certainly why you should go to WE and uh, get involved with what they do there. In addition to WE Desserts, we want to make sure that you also are aware of our social media platforms and where you can find us on there. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also subscribe to our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post all content there each Monday morning and it's pushed straight to your inbox. Highly recommend it. But as mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a packed show on deck. We've got John McLean from the Houston Chronicle. We've got Matt Weston of Battle Red Blog. And we have Adam Wexler from KPRC. I'll talk Houston sports. And it's uh, I really hope that you all enjoy the interviews. But as always, we've got a packed show on deck. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. One of our favorite guests in past episodes of The Weekly Brew podcast has been John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. And he covers the Texans and the NFL like nobody else. John, welcome back to the show, and thanks for joining us again this week. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, as always. The last time we actually spoke with you, it was during free agency. The Texans had just signed Brock Osweiler, and uh, with minicamp wrapping up this past week, what impressions do you have of, I, I guess, the Texans in year three under Bill O'Brien? First of all, Brock Osweiler has been everything they wanted and more. Now, that's off the field. But that's all he could do up to this point. He may go 0-16, and the critics around the country who think he was not a good signing may end up being right. But for those of us who watch them every day or in the facility with them, talk to people on and off the record, since the first day he signed and he brought all the receivers and quarterbacks to Scottsdale, Arizona, to practice against each other, to go out to dinner, to work out, to basically bond, He's been doing things to establish himself as a leader. Leadership can't be designated. It must be earned. He received criticism because um, he, didn't, he did not go to Denver for the ring ceremony. Well, he didn't because he had scheduled 
players and their wives to watch the Copa America soccer match between Mexico and I think Venezuela. And he got sweets for them next to each other where they could mingle. And it's little things like that, taking the linemen to dinner, having them over to his house. Those are the things, along with having a good work ethic where they can see you. He shows up every morning at 5.30, meetings are at 7. He's the last one to leave. Players see him on the field, and they see he's not making a lot of mental mistakes. So he is earning their respect, and that's important because Bill O'Brien, first and foremost, wants that quarterback to be a leader right up there with being smart because he gets so much freedom at the line of scrimmage. And so Oswater has done all that. Players on both sides of the ball have praised him about his work ethic and the way he handles himself. He's been a very good talker, and as he told us, he goes back home to Montana and Idaho in the summer, and only time he will not either throw at a local high school or be in his iPad for the playbook and watching OTAs in the minicamp is he's going to take a few days off around the 4th of July. And coaches and players love hearing that. You know, he didn't go to the White House because of the – they had an OTA, and and a lot of people thought he was crazy. Well, it's his decision. Players players wouldn't lose respect that he'd gone to the White House, but he got a lot of cred with them for passing it up to be there with them out, at the, out on the hot practice field. So we're not going to know anything until we see him lining up with people coming after him on the, from the other side of the ball. But at this point, the Texans are very happy with their $72 million investment i'm pretty happy with that too honestly that signals to me a guy that's looking forward and not looking back and i am glad that his mind at least seems to be here with this team but just a procedural note i'm curious we've had minicamp the last day canceled again how important is minicamp if we're canceling the last day of it every year o'brien wants the players to know that if if they do what they're supposed to do he'll he'll make sure they're rewarded you know you can't give them dog biscuits and stuff like they were a pet, but he can shorten practice. He can let them go early sometime. In this case, he canceled the last day of the minicamp for the second year in a row. And what constitutes a successful practice is when you learn in the practice in the in the meeting room, and when you bring it out to the field, don't make a lot of mistakes based on what you've just been taught. And that means the coaches have done a good job teaching to them, and they've been also done a good job of absorbing. And if they, and he doesn't practice long. Some coaches practice two and a half hours. O'Brien practices an hour and a half, but they practice fast. They get a lot done in an hour and a half. So you've got to be mentally alert and on your toes all the time when you have so much achieved in an hour and a half. And so if he wasn't pleased, he would have had him back out there for a third day. Kind of on Brock Osweiler again for a moment. You had mentioned him bringing some guys out to Arizona and working with them. And the Texans definitely uh, put a lot of focus on the offense this offseason. Uh, of course, you've got the known commodity in DeAndre Hopkins. But, you know, they, they had Will Fuller in the draft, Braxton Miller. And then Jalen Strong comes back in better shape. How is he kind of working with those wide receivers? And is it a difficult transition for him learning a new system and working on the timing? Or is that something that we can expect to get better as we get into fall camp and preseason? It's a constant work in progress. You know, common sense tells you if he was back in Denver for the fifth year working on the same system as last season and the same players, things would be smoother. But they have to get used to things like his cadence. And that's one of the things they worked on in Arizona with the other players. Tom Savage, the backup quarterback, showed him the cadence. They said they hadn't had any cadence issues with him early in the camp. That was unusual for a new quarterback. So they spent a lot of time bonding. That's good on the field, off the field. And, um, you know, he's got a lot of young receivers around him, so young guys going to make mistakes. You've got two, Jalen Strong and Keith Mumphrey in their second seasons, and then you have two, Will Fuller and Braxton Miller, who are rookies. So that's four guys that are going to make a lot of rookie mistakes. The key is, did they make them twice? Eventually, their four wides will look like this. Hopkins and Fuller outside and Strong and Miller inside. And that seems to be, at least on paper, a pretty strong group. 
I'm just curious for a guy coming in. Obviously, we're going to see how well uh, Brock Osweiler does picking up this offense and uh, the new guys you mentioned as well. How difficult is the offensive scheme that O'Brien runs uh, for new players to kind of work into and uh, and master? You better pay attention, and you better have retention because they, it's it's complicated. But they don't shove it all down your throat at once. Some coaches do that and then see what the players can pick up. They teach it in blocks because they want guys to react more instinctively instead of having to think. But there is a lot on their plate, especially for a quarterback at the line of scrimmage. And Gary Kubiak is just the opposite. He didn't want his quarterback having a lot of authority at the line of scrimmage. He just didn't, and that's worked great for Gary, who just won a Super Bowl. But Bill O'Brien's different. He likes the quarterback to have a lot on his plate at the line of scrimmage. And to do that and to pull it off, you've got to know not just what you're doing, but what everybody else is doing as well. So you've got some rookies that are poised to make an impact. You've also got guys like Brian Cushing, who I've been reading a lot of press about in terms of his preparation, the way he's approached this season, his fitness and so forth. Um, Just from your perspective, who do you think is poised to make uh, the biggest leap this year uh, from their performance last year, or at least in terms of a rookie uh, having a first-time performance? Who's going to be a big impact player that maybe we didn't see make an impact last year? I would say on offense, we've already talked about I mean, uh, Jalen Strong. Because right now, Will Fuller, uh, first-round pick who's a junior, would be ticketed to be the starter, but you can't force a rookie receiver in there. It wouldn't surprise me at all when the season begins if they don't have DeAndre Hopkins and Jalen Strong as their starter, and then when Fuller would come in, they'd move Strong inside. So I would say Strong, and then on defense, inside linebacker, Nodrick, McKinney. McKinney started slow last year. It's very difficult what's on their shoulders mentally, linebackers in a 3-4, and so he got hurt and when he came back and got in the lineup, they went 8-3 and three with him in there. And Bill O'Brien said he can help us beyond being a, just a two-down back. He can help us on third down. He can help us on special teams. And he singled him out over any of the other defensive players when we ask about players who had improved on that side of the ball. You know that J.J. Watt is going to put in the effort each day, each game, and be that uh, strong defensive player. Uh, But one of the concerns for the Texans is kind of who plays opposite him on the defensive line, and who do you see kind of fitting that role for the Texans so, you know, Watt is not going to be double-teamed and triple-teamed and, you know, can actually uh, continue to wreak havoc on opposing offenses? I'm writing about that as we speak. And Watt will always be double-teamed. There were a couple teams last year, Tennessee in the opener, the opening game against the Titans, and the Jets tried to have a right tackle block Watt, which is strange because your right tackle is not even your best tackle. The left tackle is always the top one. And um, what would do is it would allow others to make those sacks. Now, they play a base defense about 30% of the time. And last year, they had some strange formations. I remember when they had in passing situations, they had inside linebacker Brian Cushing and inside outside linebacker John Simon lining up in the middle, flanking Vince Wilfork, who shouldn't have been in the game in a passing situation. And then they would have uh, Jadevian Clowney and Whitney Merciless on the same side and Watt on the other side. So Romeo Cornell, defensive coordinator, likes to mix things up. Right now, Devin Steele is the starting right end. They haven't hit anybody in the linemen because they can't put on pads to camp. But he's 6'5", and he's 3'10". And he was drafted in the second round by Cincinnati. And Cincinnati does as good a job as any in drafting. So he's been distracted by his daughter Liz Cancer the last two years. So now things have settled down. She's in remission. He got married. He needs money. So he will be very motivated to keep that job. They also have second-year tackle Christian Covington and nose tackle Brandon Dunn competing at right defensive end. And those guys are not going to be spectacular players, but they are certainly good enough to play with on 30% of the downs. So from my perspective, uh, the Texans have improved, but of course they don't play in a vacuum. You're in the same division as the Colts, Jaguars, and Titans. So just in terms of the other teams and what they're putting into place, are the Texans taking step forwards against those three teams they're going to have to see? Indianapolis did not improve that much. They got Andrew Luck back. They didn't do anything to improve their running game. They tried to improve the offensive line. And 
Andrew was not playing great when he was hurt, so he's got something to prove. And the Texans should definitely be better, and so should the Titans and the Jaguars. I mean, Jaguars still has some injuries, but overall those two teams should be somewhere in a 7-8 win season. If they're not, that's going to be surprising to me. And the Colts... I mean, the Jaguars have made so many improved, so many changes on defense and putting so many young, talented players. I don't know how they can't be better. When Gus Bradley came from Seattle, where he was a top defensive coordinator, but his defense has been nothing special with the Jaguars. But to me, Jacksonville could be the most improved team in the AFC. And I say that, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but the team that should be a legitimate Super Bowl contender that did not have a winning record last year, I think, would be the Oakland Raiders. Yeah, they've got uh, tons of talent there at the quarterback position. And when it comes to quarterbacks, you always need a great offensive line to protect those guys. And we've got Dwayne Brown coming back from injury. And then uh, Bill O'Brien said uh, last Wednesday that one of the most improved players on offense was right tackle Derek Newton. How do you see the offensive line kind of shaping together? And are there still some concerns regarding depth on the offensive line? The offensive line has more questions going into camp than any area on the team. They got a new start at right guard, Jeff Allen. They're going to have a new start at center, probably Nick Martin. The left guard, Xavier Suofilo, once he got out of O'Brien's doghouse and got healthy, he was, they were 6-2 and two with him as a starter. Dwayne Brown suffered a torn quad tendon in the 16th and 15th game. He won't be ready till the start of the season. Therefore, Chris Clark will take his place. So we're looking at potentially three new starters in the line two for sure, and injuries hurt them early last year. Over the second half of the season when they went 6-2, and two, they had only one player miss a game, that was right guard Brandon Brooks. Having a second-year coach, Mike Devlin, knowing what he expects, him knowing his players better should help them, and uh, they, they should be better because they have better people behind them, better quarterback, better running backs. They should make the offensive line look good. Kind of on the on the defensive end as well, one of the guys that has struggled with injuries since he was drafted number one overall in the NFL draft is Jadavion Clowney. Is this almost a make-or-break season for him? We call it spitter get off the pot. The third <laughs> year, he's got to stay healthy. Last year, he showed 13 starts, but he missed a lot of those three, three more games, so it's like he missed six. He knows how to play the run well. We saw him go up and down the line of scrimmage, penetrate in the backfield, but that's not why they're paying him to pick bucks. He's got to get the quarterback. If he could play all 16 games, he should be up there around 10 or 12 sacks, and that would give them the chance, a rare hat trick in the NFL of three players with at least 10 sacks. You don't see that very much, and if they did, it would be the most prolific pass rushing league. Uh, John, I know we've spoken a little bit about Baylor in the past, and uh, I'm a Baylor alum, you're a Baylor alum, and the Art Briles situation and the Board of Regents uh, suspending him with intent to terminate, and then uh, the legal situation surrounding it. Last Thursday, uh, Briles' attorney says that the, the coach's firing was a camouflage for Baylor's own institutional failure, and I'm just curious, as a, as a Baylor alum and someone that follows the program closely, what are your thoughts on the entire situation? I'm a big Art Browse fan. I've known Art since he was at the University of Houston. He did better things at Baylor than anybody in history. Did Things were built because of Art. And all this stuff about him possibly coming back was hogwash. The reason he hadn't been fired yet is they're trying to work out a settlement on his contract. He's owed $40 million. And I hope he gets every penny. And they're talking about settlements with a rape victim in which he was part of the lawsuit he said no i'm not going to settle i don't have all the facts he's never been given the facts he said about why he was fired so it's going to get uglier and it's too bad i hate to see it come to this but if i was if i had contract and i was told i'd be paid and there were no clauses in there about uh, me being fired showing cause i would i would go after them as well now, as a Baylor alum, we've got a call over us, a stain on us. We all do. And it's going to be a long time before it comes off, just like the basketball program 13 years ago. You know, you put up with ridicule, and 90, 98% of the people go to Baylor are great. Baylor Nation's going to rise up and support the team like crazy, and they should be good. If the NCAA stays out of it, Baylor's got talent at quarterback. 
running back, wide receiver, new offensive line. So they're going to score a lot, and they're going to give up a lot, just like they have in recent years. But <laughs> they're going to also have to pay out a whole lot of money to a lot of people because they got caught with their pants down when it came to uh, no pun intended, but they they did not do what they were supposed to do with Title IX and the Clery Act, and they should have to pay dearly for that in fines. And also, the federal money could be be withheld, but uh, there's no chance Art was ever coming back. That was a couple of alums saying it. They had no say about anything that happened, and, and of course, driven by a lot of media people that didn't really have a clue about what's going on. Yeah, it's just a sad situation overall, but I know that Baylor uh, Nation will recover. And uh, John, I know that, uh, you know, minicamp is over right now. We've got a little bit of time before camp and uh, in preseason football. And one of the big things that you do uh, during the fall is you head up to Canton for the Hall of Fame. And do you are you working on any specific stories or uh, anything kind of leading up to the, the Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Canton, Ohio? I hadn't even thought about it yet. It's such a... It's such a um, big part of my life if it's somebody that came from the Oilers or the Cowboys I go up there with ideas otherwise I go up with just that wanting to come up with the best possible angles truthfully I like to go up there to hang out with all the Hall of Famers <laughs> get to go behind the scenes parties and see them and get to know them through the years and it's you talk about an honor being able to to uh, hang out with the guys I used to pretend I was them playing football in the backyard when I was a kid in Waco. (laughs) There can't be a greater honor. John, we always appreciate you coming on and joining us for the Weekly Brew Podcast. And for those that are interested in following your work, not only on thecron.com, but on social media, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? I need need all the Twitter followers I can get. It's McLean, M-C-C-L-A-I-N underscore on underscore NFL. McLean underscore on underscore NFL and all my stories are either on cron.com or a premium section for cron subscribers or those with the app houstonchronicle.com most of my stuff runs on houstonchronicle.com and I'm uh, on sports radio 610 six days a week and uh, I think I'm on 18 other weekly shows too many to to, uh, (laughs) say but thank you guys very much for having me and i'll be happy to do it anytime well we appreciate it yes sir well we appreciate it you get that sickum in there oh you know it (laughs) we appreciate it john thank you guys you're listening to the weekly brew now, just a few minutes ago on the podcast, we spoke with John McClain on the Texans' prospects following OTAs and minicamp, and uh, now we're going to dive into this a little bit more with Matt Wesson from Battle Red Blog, who you'll recall joined us on episode 41 of the podcast, and uh, Matt, when I look at the Texans' defense, it's J.J. Watt that gets all of the headlines, but one of the guys that really impressed me last year was Whitney Merciless. After signing that four-year, $26 million contract, he just took his game up another level, uh, he had 12 sacks on the season, uh, 52 combined tackles. He just elevated his game as a pass rusher, and I think he kind of flies under the radar a little bit from the Texans. Now, as I understand, you've actually got an article coming out this week on Battle Red Blog on Merciless and his production with the Texans. What can you tell us about him as we gear up for the 2016 season? I think the thing with Merciless is whenever he re- whenever he signed that deal, and they had like the 26 highest paid outside linebacker, and he wasn't you know all that great when he signed it, uh, the one thing he was really he, you know, he's been good at his entire career is uh, run stopping the run. And if you look at his tackle numbers, for example, they've all stayed like a single tackle, say about like 35 throughout those last you know three years. But he just couldn't rush the passer whatsoever. And so it's kind of like strange that you give a guy he has seven million dollars a year, so he can't rush the passer. He's only get stopping the run because you can find somebody you know in the sixth round who can just set the edge over and over again. And so Merciless has always been great from the edge. But what happened this past year was that he became good rushing the passer. And I think one, one of the things that's kind of cute about when you look at the stats and watch the film is that his sack numbers, he should have had 12 sacks, but I think they're also kind of inflated because nine out of 12 sacks came against the Tides and the Jaguars. I think three came against just being with Joko in Week 17. But whenever you start watching the film, you know, I saw the numbers. I thought, well, you know, he probably isn't that great, actually. These are probably overinflated. And then you watch the film, and one of the things you see is that he's just – every play he's just kind of making things happen. And that's what you look for in a pass rush. You're – you know, you're making a sack a game. You may get, you may get two sacks in a game. You may get 15 in a year. But what you want to see is you want to see just him make plays happen 
him, you know, hurry the quarterback, him get around blocks consistently. And that's what changed from 2015 to 2014. In 2014, it was a lot of edge rushes where he would attack out the shoulder and rip. And then tackle started just setting on that, getting him to the point of attack and just setting on his outside, setting on their outside shoulder and squaring him up, and he just couldn't do very much. And then 2015, he started to mix things up. You would see him, it's still the same rip move, but he started bull rushing. He started faking outside and slanting inside and swimming over the top. You saw him do this kind of same juke move, but plant inside, loop around outside, and swim that way too. And the other thing he's really good at also is stunning, especially on TE stunts where the defensive tackle will take on two blocks and then he'll loop around the other side. And one of the things he's really great at is planning and just going and going right through the A gap whenever everything's completely wide open, whenever that uh, offensive line is switched that well. And so, yeah, he had 12 sacks, but the most impressive thing was just watching him play and watching him string together pass rush moves, watch him learn new pass rush moves, be able to execute them, and just make things happen every play. Like, for example, that Bengals game, he had like eight hurries. and was constantly over the field, but I think he only had one sack. And so it was just a, a really big step for him and a, a huge step in the maturation process. And the Texans have a steal with him. You know, at, at his contract, he's the 26 highest pay linebacker. And he really, you know, he really changed into a, a great player this past year. Well, if, uh, if our listeners follow you on Twitter, and we recommend they do, at MBW987, you mentioned you were watching film on Whitney Merciless this week for an article, and you said, oh my, I'm starting to fall in love, which is pretty strong language. So, I mean, obviously you've given us some of the highlights here, but uh, do you think he's going to take a step forward this season? Do you think that the fans are going to fall in love with him as much as you have been watching film? I think what, I don't know. I think with him, his pass rush moves getting better. I think he can get better swimming, for example. He doesn't use it that often. And he really only uses it whenever he rushes outside shoulder and gets stemmed or he gets stopped out there, and then he'll swim back inside. As just so a lot of guys, they get stopped, and once they stop, they can't do anything at all. And Willie Jackson's a really great example of that. But, you know, he, I think learning moves like that, getting better at the swim move, getting better at the spin move will make him a better player. But I just think athletically, I think he's peaked. He has a huge he, – I mean, he's so strong upper body. You see that so much whenever he punches tight ends and jams them in the run game. But I just don't see him getting any faster. And so the elite edge rushers, you know, guys like Von Miller, Marcus Ware, those are guys who are just really fast off the ball. They have great bursts, and they can just run around tackles, and tackles can't put their, put their hands on them even. And Merciless doesn't have that speed. He doesn't have that burst off the ball to be able to just run around guys. And so because of that, I don't think he'll ever become like a top five pass rusher at all. But I think, you know, top 15, and then you combine that with his ability to stop the run, makes him, you know, a great player. Now, Matt, one of the things that I asked John McClain about was whether or not this was a make-or-break year for Jadavion Clowney. Again, he's entering his third season with the Texans. He's kind of been hindered by injuries throughout his career, but he's a guy that has all of the physical tools in terms of pass rushing, but he hasn't put it together on a consistent basis. Do you see him kind of stepping up this season to, I guess, get to that next contract, or do you see him as ultimately a bust for the Texans? Yeah, I mean, Clowney's had kind of a strange career because he missed pretty much his entire rookie year. And the problem with that was that he was so overwhelming as a physical talent in college, but he wasn't a great football player. So, like, he didn't know how to read offensive linemen's feet. He didn't know how to place his hands. He didn't know how to, you know, attack half a man because he didn't have to do any of those things. He was so much stronger athletically, so much faster that he didn't have to, you know, be, be a great football player. And so that was saying such a shame about his first year was that he learned an entire year of getting – he lost an entire year of getting reps. And so he lost an entire year of just becoming a better, you know, football player. And so last year, all you really wanted to expect from him after microfracture surgery, surgery was just flashes of that athleticism and potential. And he showed that over and over again last year. You know, you, he, that, that athleticism is still there. And then he started to learn how to play the game better. I know, for example, he had a great game against the I wrote something on. We had a pass rush move where he just punched the guy in the face, slammed over the guard, and sacked Brady. And he right. was just doing things like that where he was just manhandling guys. And so – we saw the flashes there, and now this year is just can he combine those flashes with the football technique that he's learned that he learned last year. And so I think this should be a breakout year for him. But again, all it comes down to him being healthy. And if he never stays healthy, then nothing's gonna come up him exactly, other than him being kind of like a, a third down player. But like he's just so good athletically, and now that he's starting to learn how to play football, I think this year it can be huge. But it just depends on if he can stay healthy or not. And so far in his first two years, he hasn't shown that ability yet. But I don't, I don't see him being a bust, and if he becomes a bust, it's not because he's not a good football player. It's going to be because of his own body just being a curse in a way. Now, if he's healthy this year, if he does take it up the next level and Merciless continues to develop, obviously you've got J.J. Watt. How could can this defense be under Romeo Cornell in year three? Yeah, they were six, I think, six or seventh in DVA last year. I think they were 
second in adjusted DBOA. That kind of weighs down towards the end of the year. And those first seven weeks, I mean, they were just horrendous. They couldn't, they couldn't tackle well. They were slow. They couldn't tackle him by in space. And then you saw Cornell start to play the younger guys and stop playing guys like, you know, Raheem Moore and Andre Howe got to play. Justin Tuggle stopped taking snaps. Akeem Dent stopped taking snaps. Then Marjorie McKinney got to play. And it really transformed the defense. They got a lot younger and faster. And so the one thing kind of scares me, though, is they didn't make any upgrades all to the defense and they're just assuming that they're going to be as good as they were last year. And the only thing about football, the small sample sizes, you know, bad things tend to happen that usually when you stay stagnant in your personnel, it, you know, rarely does it just stay, you know, good. But, I mean, like on paper, you assume it's going to get better, especially the front seven with you know, Merciless playing how he is. What you would expect is that, you just, and especially on third downs, you would see Merciless and Watt playing the same size because Merciless is so good at just being a dumpster diver, you know, being a trash man, picking up sacks at, picking up sacks where double teams lead to open holes. So you would want to see him and Watt playing with each other while on one side and then clowning against the right tackle and then him winning one versus one blocks. And I believe they were six last year in, just a sack rate, and so if you know is healthy, can win one on one block versus the right tackle. It can be a top two or three in your pass rush. And defensively, you have Kevin Johnson, who's young, who should get better. Andre House in the best player of that 2013 draft class. He should be even better. And then you know the only things that you kind of have to worry about is Cushing and McKinney in space, Jonathan Joseph being a year older, and then also Quinn Dempsey isn't good at football, and he doesn't have the ability to you know play at half the field. And so I'm just kind of worried about deep passes against them. But the front seven, the run defense should be good again. And then the pass rush should even be, should be even better as long as Clowney stays healthy and Mercer's continues to progress. So I see this being a top-five defense. And then, you know, film-wise and personnel-wise, but the, you know, kind of like the stats army sees them dropping off just because there was no upgrades made this past year. So obviously a lot of this hinges on uh, the guy at the helm, Bill O'Brien, who you recently uh, dove into in an article on Battle Red Blog. You talked about Steven Ruiz from USA Today ranking him as the 13th best head coach in the NFL, and then you kind of gave some analysis. And I was just wondering if you could recap the listeners. Uh, what is your general impression of the job O'Brien has done and uh, where he might rate out uh, in terms of his long-term trajectory with the Texans? Yeah, I, I think, I guess I'll say the negatives first. I think he has issues with Hand the clock in the second half and up in the, up in the second quarter, as in the fourth quarter. He also doesn't know when to go for it at two at times. He doesn't know when to go for it fourth down as well. And, like, sometimes he's just aggressive for the sake of being aggressive rather than being aggressive at the right times. That Jets game last year was a great example. They were up by, up by one possession, I believe, and they gave the Jets three possessions to come back and win that game. They forced a punt and two interceptions. And you can't give a team three possessions whenever you have the ball at their 40-yard line when you have, you know, short yard situations that you should go for. And so there are some issues with that. And also the Cowboys game from 2014 is another good example of him not being aggressive enough when he should. And the other thing about Bill O'Brien, too, that I don't like is like, this, this idea that because he got a lot out of – because he won games with Case Keenum, Tom Savage, Ryan Mallett, Brian Hoyer, uh, Brandon Whedon, TJ Yates, all those terrible quarterbacks, he should be you know, heralded for getting wins out bad players. But he chose all – six of those guys, those are all his guys he selected. And so it's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like being happy for somebody who gets themselves out of a bad situation, they put themselves in that situation. And so I think if he shouldn't be heralded for that, and now that he actually has a quarterback they kind of fell their way into, now we can see what he actually does. But I don't really think you should consider that into the analysis. But I think the thing I really admire about Bill O'Brien, though, is he has already changed his style. You know, the Texans came in first with the – Jeff Fisher sort of team that was going to run the ball and play defense and get by with bad quarterbacks. And it doesn't work whenever you go, whenever you lose the lead, whenever you can't run the ball well, like we saw last year with Arian Foster out. And then whenever you're, you're playing great teams, you can't win like that. You can win eight games, maybe nine games. You have to win a lot of close games, but it's not a sustainable strategy. And so what I liked about what he did was that he realized that this wasn't going to work. They got Osweiler. They changed things. They had more speed in the offense. They got Lamar Miller. And so, they're probably getting run a lot more, you know, three, four, three, four wide, wide receiver sets and try to open things up rather than staying stagnant. This is how I do things. We're going to keep doing it like that. And so I really admire the flexibility the team changes because the whole job of the coach is to put your players in the best position to succeed. And so far it seems like he's done that. And so I'm excited to see what he's going to do now that he has a quarterback. But again, I think he should be praised for what he did whenever they didn't have a quarterback. And he was the one who made all those decisions to not have one. 
I kind of cringe there when you read off that list of Texans quarterbacks, you know, uh, Brian Hoyer, Fitzpatrick, uh, Case Keenum. It just kind of reminded me of terrible times. So I'm definitely looking forward to the Brock Osweiler era here in Houston. But Matt, we definitely appreciate you joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. And again, you provide great work for Battle Red Blog, uh, you know, just analysis today. I mean, you just whip through it just like that. For those that are interested in following your work on Battle Red Blog and as well as following you on Twitter, what is the best way for them to find your content? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm at NBW97, and I know it's a whole lot of time on there, just mostly, you know, I write, I post things on there, and, uh, and I've done a lot of these podcasts before, I don't think anybody's ever followed me after one, so if you follow me, I think you should be the first one <laughs> to ever do that, and then I'll have uh, this article on Whitney Merciless, probably on Tuesdays, I'm shooting for, and after that, I'll probably write about other players on Battle Red Blog, like, you know, Von Miller, Kwan Short, and I want to write about Thomas Rawls and see offensive line, so... I probably won't just be writing about the Texans this summer because there's a lot you know, more interesting things kind of out there. And Tim's really flexible about what we can do at BRB, thankfully. So that's what you can look out for the rest of the summer. Matt, we definitely appreciate it. Great as always. And we hope to have you back uh, in the fall when we get into the season. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. I think one of the things that we're most proud of on this podcast is that we are Houston-based. And, you know, when it comes to Houston sports, obviously we talk a lot about Astros, a lot of the Texans, a lot of the Rockets. And when it comes to covering Houston sports, I can't think of really anyone better that I'd like to have on the podcast than Adam Wexler, who is a Houston native, went to UT, came back to Houston, worked with the Astros, who spent numerous amount of years with, uh, you know, 610 and other radio networks here in Houston has now made the transition to KPRC. Adam, uh, we appreciate you for joining us on the Weekly Brew podcast. And I guess you've been plugged in and ingrained in the Houston sports culture for several years. What has that transition been like from you from, you know, starting your career out working with the Arrows to making the move to radio to now being on TV? Can you just kind of walk us through that for a moment? Well, the good thing was I was able to kind of do radio all at the same time I was getting started with the Arrows. I actually worked at both places at the same time for about three or four years. I did some weekends at uh, 610 and then got started on doing mornings at 610 at 5 a.m. in the morning and then would go to work for the Arrows the rest of the day and night sometimes when we had games. So I'd, I'd work in the office throughout the day. I would actually work for the official stats crew during the game and then I would interview players and coaches afterwards for radio and then spin it all over and do it again the next day. But gave me the opportunity to see how the inside of an organization worked a little bit. And remember some of the time that I worked with the Arrows was when uh, the talk of NHL expansion was going on. And I was kind of seeing what it might take for this group to have it, because obviously there were two different groups that were looking to do it, the Arrows group and the Rockets group. And obviously it didn't happen for either one of them. But it was interesting to see what kind of things needed to be put in place to try to make it happen. And then uh, working at 610, obviously, I had the opportunity to do a lot there, moving to radio over at 790, and then on over to, to TV here. Transitions just, you know, you have a specific amount of time to talk on TV. It's very limited. It doesn't lead for much analysis, and you got to get to a bunch of different topics in a very quick manner. Sometimes on Sports Sunday, we obviously like to create the opportunity to give some discussion, have some debate. Certainly, that's what I like to do, and it's been nice that I've been able to pop up on the radio over uh, here and there over the last couple of years as well. Anytime a radio opportunity presents, I like to say yes when asked to come on. <laughs> kind of like this, which we enjoy conversation here. It's kind of what we do, our bread and butter. But uh, it's interesting because the nature of Houston being what it is, you know, major media market, oil and gas center, there's a lot of transient folks, particularly that we speak to in the sports media, but you, you've been rooted here and you've seen a lot of it. So I'm just curious, looking back over your entire career, or maybe even childhood, uh, is there a memory or memories that jump out at you as just being like the best Houston sports memory that you still sort of carry with you? Uh, the best the teams have ever done are usually the ones that bring back the most memories, and that means uh, the two championship years with the Rockets was here in Houston for it, so that was one of the – I think at the time there's probably 5,000 people on Richmond. By now there's probably 25,000, so a little bit like Woodstock. Everyone <laughs> says they were there and were able to roam up and down the streets, and I jumped on this fire truck, and I jumped from car to car. I'm sure most of those stories have been embellished a bit, but it is true. The, the Woodrows that was there then – uh, that's where I was for watching uh, watching the final game and just kind of took to the streets after that. And it was what championships are kind of all about in most cities that celebrate correctly because those that recall uh, can remember that there there wasn't a whole lot of need for police activity and there wasn't the burning this and flipping over that and doing it the wrong way like all these people have since then. But 
Uh, remember that, certainly, the World Series with the Astros. I was working at the time, so I was able to, to see it more from the inside. Obviously, they didn't win any games, but being a part of that and, and seeing what all goes into it, just being out there for covering it, the, the memories really from, from those years where the Astros were doing things well in the playoffs were what they did to get there. And to be on the field just after Chris Burke hits his home run in extra innings and, and to be two feet away from Roger Clemens when he's grabbing Burke like he's a little toy doll and, and flinging him up in the air and, and hugging him tightly and, <laughs> you know, those types of things. You know, In the clubhouse just this past year in Arizona when the Astros clinched their playoff berth, so in there to get my clothes soaked with champagne and beer, things like that, uh, they certainly stand out both from a fan standpoint and then now obviously having worked in the industry from a, from a media member standpoint as well. So we, we also cherish those kinds of memories. I grew up here as well, as did Austin. But the goal, of course, is to make new memories like that. And uh, interestingly enough, last week on the podcast, we had Mike and Seth of Mad Radio. And Seth said that we are uh, on the verge of a golden age in Houston sports. You, know, you talk about Brock Osweiler coming in. I guess there is some excitement about D'Antoni as head coach of the Rockets. There's a lot of potential here. Uh, do you think it's a fair statement? Or are we on the verge of, uh, of maybe another era like there was during the championships in 94-95? That's... That's a tough one. It's a possibility, but acting like Mike D'Antoni to the Rockets means they're going right back to 56 wins is a fallacy. It certainly <laughs> could happen. It, and, and, and any coach I could say that about. I, I don't think they could have hired anybody where I said there's no way that's going to happen because of that. And D'Antoni certainly gets a, into that same conversation. I don't think the, the coach that they would have hired or have hired has prevented that from happening. But they're not in a position to do that. And baseball's a little bit different where, you know, you saw last year the Astros really didn't do a whole lot last year after the great start. And now they're kind of trying to flip it around, which would maybe make this team a little stronger. If this is a playoff team for them to have recovered from what they did, to, to finally see their Cy Young Award winner pitch like that, if he does that over the next three and a half months, then I do think that's, that's what's going to happen. And I do think this team will be a playoff team. And they have a base of talent every year. Altuve is not going anywhere. Presumably Springer and Correa are not going anywhere. You're starting with three guys like that that they hope to build around. Bregman should be a fourth in that group starting later this year and then for years to come. That's what puts the Astros in an extremely good position. As far as the Texans go, it's to me almost remarkable how many wins they have in franchise history with the garbage they've trotted out there at quarterback. Uh, They have made an attempt to be good at quarterback on only three occasions in all their years. When they drafted David Carr number one, clearly their thought was, this guy's going to be our quarterback for the next 10 to 12 years, and mm-hmm. we've made the right choice. Ultimately, they made a bad choice. He didn't put the time and effort in. They certainly didn't surround him offensive line-wise with some of the things that might have helped, but I'm definitely in the camp that thinks Carr did as much to hurt himself by his own uh way he went about things as much as they hurt him with the the lack of talent around him. So they went about it that time. They went about it when they made the trade for Schaub. Uh, But clearly that was a a risk because this is basically a guy who'd never played. And now they've done it again with Osweiler, who's played a limited amount. But in no other situation have they gone into seasons or gone about it where they they really have made a concerted effort to to make things work at quarterback. I applaud Bill O'Brien and his staff for making the group they've used the last two years better than they are, making them look serviceable, making them look good. But you're not going to win in the NFL with those quarterbacks. So basically when each of those two seasons began, they knew they weren't going anywhere great. And now maybe, maybe that's different with Osweiler. So golden age, I don't know. Gold, silver, bronze, maybe bronze, pewter age, something like that. <laughs> I will just clarify that when we were actually speaking of that, we were we were talking about our poor predictions uh, when it comes to sports. And I, I believe Seth was saying that uh, that was his poor prediction is that, you know, maybe he wasn't uh, quite right when saying the golden age of sports is around the corner. And he qualified that by saying a lot of things needed to happen. But uh, specifically with the Rockets, uh, he had mentioned that, you know, they might be a few years away based on uh, impending free agent moves. And on Friday, the NBA announced that the salary cap is actually going to be raised to $94 million. Now, of course, the Rockets have their centerpiece in James Harden. They're going to be running more of an up-tempo offense this year with D'Antoni. Who do you see them bringing in to possibly help Harden out and, and create more of a, a team that can not only do it on the offensive end, but actually play some defense? Well, they're already up against it like every team in the West is, other than San Antonio, Oklahoma City, and Golden State. Each of those three teams will have two players on them better than every single team in the West has, except for the Rockets. The Rockets have one player that fits in that group of six, now seven. 
because Curry and Thompson are better than any individual player anybody else has. Same with Westbrook and Durant. Same with Aldridge and Leonard, other than James Harden. But you look at the rest of the West, and that's the uphill battle that every single team is fighting. And for the Rockets to get on a level playing field with those teams, you would think they need to add a player of that caliber or obviously this offseason eliminate a player of that caliber from one of those teams, that being Kevin Durant. I think we all know it's a really, really, really long shot that Durant leaves, first of all, and second of all, leaves for Houston is an even longer shot. But I wouldn't suspect that would happen. The next tier of free agents is such an amazing step down. Good players. Al Horford's a good player. Mike Conley's a good player. Uh, Ryan Anderson, nice role player. But these aren't the types of players that are going to elevate you above any of those three teams. I wouldn't suspect, other than the obvious, injuries could change things. And, and whatever dynamics with those teams could change a little. But San Antonio, clearly, because of the guys around those two, are going to change. Tony Parker, Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili mean less and less to that team. So they're going to need a little help from others. But they're, they're starting in a pretty good spot with Aldridge and Leonard. So it wouldn't surprise me if Al Horford, with the amount of money the Rockets should have available, uh, would be one of the teams that would be willing to give him you know, as much as anybody to see if that's the type of player. A little bit more range, certainly can defend at the basket, not quite the type of defender Dwight Howard is. I think he's a good positional defender and, and strong enough to play the position. He's not quite the shot blocker. He certainly doesn't you know, leap up over like Dwight did in his better years. But that's the type of player I would suspect is probably at the top of their list to at least put them in the conversation to be potentially the fourth or fifth seed in the West, like they figured they would be this year, and, and probably where they thought they would be the year before when they somehow got the number two. Well, it all hinges on James Harden, who is the marquee guy. And we'd actually said on this show before we were encouraged that this was an Olympic year because he would benefit from the competition with those guys that he'd be going against every day. And then we hear that he's actually sitting out the Olympics like a couple of other uh, star guys in the league are doing. So just from your perspective, I mean, how does that impact his offseason? Do you think James Harden comes back with that hunger and that fire ready to go in shape the way we want him to? Certainly no reason for him not to. I would, would hope that he would. I would hope that one of the reasons he's not doing the Olympics is to focus more individually on getting himself ready for the type of season he needs to have and the type of of, uh, role he plays here, which is a guy who's asked to do everything. doesn't play defense because I I think he feels like it takes away from what he can do offensively. And I don't know if anybody's paying attention to the NBA Finals, but the exact same thing is happening with Steph Curry, and I don't think anybody really wants to discuss it. Uh, The uh, Cavaliers know that however they can get a matchup where the guy with the ball is being guarded by Steph Curry, that's the matchup they want. Uh, They're running him all over the court. They're working switches, so he has to defend people. Whenever he's faced up on Kyrie Irving, Irving is just looking his chops, as he should be. It's the weakest link of their defensive team, and it's definitely hurt. And the more he's been forced to play defense in this series, the thing that I think everybody has noticed, they're not really putting two and two together, but Curry's offense hasn't been good in this series. He's he's maybe had a, a good half, a good couple of quarters offensively. He's still accumulating some numbers, but he's doing nothing to create for his team. He's not uh, adding things to their offense that he did during the regular season. Uh, two players on the Cavs are out playing him, and this is the MVP. It's one of the reasons the series has reached the seventh game. When we look at that Houston sports right now, one of the teams that I am most excited about is definitely the Astros. And you, you had mentioned uh, the longevity that the Astros are going to have with you know top prospects like Correa, Altuve, Bregman kind of on the brink and uh, obviously building around maybe Keuchel and McCullers. Uh, but when you look at that team uh, – I think there was a lot of frustration for Astros fans, you know, when they kind of designed it to almost build to lose so they could secure that number one draft pick. Uh, but when you look at the Astros and, and their long-term prospects, they got they started off a little bit slow this year, but now they're starting to come around. How do you see them kind of developing as we, you know, get toward the middle of the summer and, and not only contending this year, but potentially in years down the road? You said kind of. I don't, I don't think you need to use the word kind of. The Astros clearly went about that plan purposely losing Again, no team would ever say it, and it sounds harsh for me to say it even, or anybody to say it, but that was the plan. The plan was to put themselves in position to utilize the system to their advantage. And as the draft system changed and you're able to manipulate the amount of money you can spend, the worse record you have, the higher in the draft you are, you get a bigger pool of money. And what they did the year they drafted Carlos Correa, number one overall, was brilliant. You see it on the field this week when Correa is playing shortstop and Lance McCullers is, is on the mound. They don't get, you know, They could have drafted Byron Buxton and just some guy. Instead, they drafted Carlos Correa and Lance McCullers. They knew they could sign Correa for a little bit less. They knew what it would take 
to draft a player like McCullers, who should have gone earlier but was asking for more money, which made teams pass on him, and, and they were able to do it. They kept landing near the top of the draft because clearly the draft isn't going to make you better. It's just going to make your system better, which obviously it has become one of the best in baseball and probably have traded away more prospects than they needed to over the last probably year or so. Right. But they're in great position. They've got guys on the, on the roster that haven't made a big club yet that I think are going to help them at the big league level or help them to make moves uh, that allow this team to win again for the long term. That was the goal they set out, and you know whatever people want to say about where the team is now and the slow start and what's Luno doing with these trades and all that, what they did, it worked. They drafted the right people. It, the, the players that they thought would be good have panned out, and that's the only reason the plan worked, but it did. So Astros and Rockets talk always enjoyable, but in this town, the NFL drives the bus. And uh, uh, like a lot of football fans, I enjoy seeing a lot of offense. I'm not necessarily a nuanced football fan. And the team really seemed to focus on offense, both in the draft, bringing in Brock Osweiler, Lamar Miller as well. I mean, guys that are expected to make a contribution immediately. So I'm just curious, do you think, uh, or what do you think we can expect from the offense of the Texans this season? And uh, are we going to see the really high-flying, high-scoring kind of drives that I would like to see? Hard to say about how much the scoring will increase, but it should. What I would say is you're going to see the offense. I think Bill O'Brien wanted to run as soon as he got a head coaching job and just didn't have the personnel to do it. I think he worked with what he had with Fitzpatrick and Hoyer and Mallett and Keenum and the rest of the quarterbacks he's used. And similarly with the offensive talent pool, with what he got out of Arian Foster because of the injuries that hit him and what they had with Andre Johnson in year one and what they didn't have with anybody other than DeAndre Hopkins in year two. They're starting to build an arsenal of offensive assets, finally. And even though Will Fuller and Braxton Miller are young, I think they're going to find a way to use Miller creatively. I wouldn't expect them to be a target of all that many passes, to be honest with you, but I think they'll find ways to get them the ball in space and maybe even have them in the backfield. Uh, Fuller probably is a little bit more polished receiver, even though limited on what he was asked to do at Notre Dame. I, I think that helps this team a great deal. And at some point, they're going to have to go find a tight end. The short passing game will work a whole lot better if they have guys that can make plays in space. Tyler Irvin, Braxton Miller, Will Fuller, these are all players they added this offseason precisely for that reason. It's what this offense has lacked uh, for the two years that Bill O'Brien's been in this position. Now, Adam, I'm kind of curious. You grew up in the Houston area, so you had mentioned one of your greatest memories being, uh, you know, celebrating the Rockets championships. And I'm kind of curious, as a fan of Houston sports teams growing up in the area, probably going to the Astros games, probably going to Oilers and Texans games, do you think that kind of impacts how you cover uh, those pro teams when it comes to your day-to-day job with KPRC? Probably only in the fact that whenever things happen, it reminds me of something that's already happened or was close to have happened in years past. You know, usually when I look at what you know, whatever team is doing the Astros right now, it'll re- remind me of, well, back then they, they used to do this and that. And I just have a lot of history with these teams because, as you said, it's all true. I went to games at the Astrodome when I was growing up to watch the Astros play. It was there in 1980 for one of their playoff games against the Phillies. Uh, long after that, I was, I was at a lot of these games, most of them, though, uh, as a worker. I have not attended a single Texans game as a fan, but all – uh, all but one season. I think I've been to every single home game they've had, um, but all as a member of the media. So, yeah, it's a little bit different, but most of the stuff that I watch always reminds me of things that, that happened in years past. And you know, I'll look at Coach O'Brien and Coach Kubiak and Coach Capers, and it'll make me think of Bum Phillips and Jerry Glanville and, and others that ran the football team, the Oilers, before these guys. And same thing with Hal and Aaron, Terry Collins, and those managers versus what they've had with Phil Garner and Jimmy Williams and, and A.J. Hintz. Uh, a lot of history with all those teams. Remember the, the good times, the 1980 and 86 Rockets. Was, was there as a fan with, with those guys, and now what they're trying to do with their new generation of fans. Well, you mentioned at the top of the show that you spent time at 610, 790, CSN, and, and now you're with that. Now you're at KPRC. Uh, for those that are uh, kind of interested in following your work on TV, uh, what is the best time slot for them to actually turn on uh, the news, turn on KPRC, and find your work? Well, we're on at 6 and 10 every single night. I anchor on Friday nights, and Sunday nights at 10.30, we have Sports Sunday. It's been the longest-running sports show here in Houston, about 30 years' worth of Sports Sunday. So I've been on that for actually a number of years, but uh, now having moved over here last year, I'm on it every Sunday, some sort of capacity, whether it's uh, filing a report, uh, putting a package together, sitting on, on a panel with some sort of excellent debate because the Astros, Rockets, Texans, and everybody else always provides us with something to discuss. But that's when you'll catch me. Catch me on Twitter, at A. Wexler, K-T-R-C. I'm addicted like most people are. I'm on it 24 hours a <laughs> day pretty much. You'll find me there. And I do like to respond because 
the same that gives you the vibe of the, the radio show. There's a little back and forth. I usually enjoy that. And we definitely recommend following you on Twitter as well. And Adam, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, and for you taking the time out and joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. You got it, guys. Anytime. Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Again, thanks to John McClain, Matt Weston, and Adam Wexler for joining us this week. And we talked a lot about the Texans. Does that not get you guys fired up about football season? It gets me fired up about football season, for sure. I'm, I'm fired up for it. I'm also fired up for this podcast. I mean, I think when you think of Houston sports... What immediately comes to your mind? For me, it's the Weekly Brew Podcast and the job that we do here. So, uh, again, when you talk about sports metaphors, knocking it out of the park, something we do on a regular basis. So, great job by us. Great job by the guests. But ultimately, mostly great job by us. And I'm super excited for football season now that the NBA is over. I'm just ready for football. Speaking of uh, slam dunks this week, our listeners hit it out of the ballpark. Slam dunks. Great iTunes reviews this week. Kevin, I know it's your favorite segment week in and week out. Go ahead and give shout-outs. I honestly lost count. There were so many new reviews this week. Somewhere between four and seven. Um, it's not necessarily easy to tell, but uh, great job. And again, Melissa, uh, thank you for encouraging your friends to listen to the show and to review us. Uh, great job by you. Um, we do have one uh, from Yimobasal. It's Y-M-O-B-S-A-L. Y-Mobsal is what I'm going to call you. Best podcast with a favorite person is Kevin, and I'm always waiting for new episodes. Can't stop listening. That's right. Can't stop, won't stop. We appreciate that review, of course. And then uh, a weird one here. Awesome podcast. I love how funny it is. Austin is my favorite one. I don't know about that. Uh, Mitch43, dollar sign, 75940. Super funny is the uh, is the title of it. And then amazing with three exclamation marks from Natalie F. This podcast is super interesting and entertaining. I highly recommend people to listen to it. I also highly recommend people to listen to it. But again, uh, we can't get our message out there unless you share with your friends. So if you enjoy this show, and we know that you do, uh, share it with your friends via Facebook, via Twitter, uh, and go to iTunes and leave us a review as well. We we'll give you a shout out. We also had one more review from uh, a lolly girl 08. Is that right? Okay. All right. So a little inside baseball, peek inside the curtain here. You can actually say, was this review helpful? Yes or no. And it moves it up the chain. So Austin cherry picked a review that he enjoyed that was new this week and clicked that it was more helpful to him. And I'll read it for you. I think you'll see why. This is from lolly girl 008. Awesome podcast, great content, and I love the variety of guests, especially the guy who interviewed Richard Justice. Y'all should have him back again sometime. Austin is natural at leading the talk. Kevin could use a little work, winky face. I think she's flirting with me. If you're like me and don't keep up with current events, you should tune in. It's an entertaining way to stay informed. So uh, lots of reasons for lots of us to love that. Andrew Cooley, of course, was the guy interviewing Richard Justice, and I believe that is from Andrew Cooley's... Fiance. fiance. She is the fiance now. So congratulations to those two guys. We couldn't be more thrilled for them. Uh, we are always happy when people get married on this podcast, even though more than half of marriages end in divorce. We're sure that that one's going to make it. So congrats, guys. So again, thanks to everybody for those great iTunes reviews this week. And uh, we thank everyone that listens to the show. We especially love you if you give us feedback and commentary. Uh, that's something that we love. Uh, we want to get better each week. And uh, we think your input definitely helps us do that. And also, in terms of iTunes, just remember, go there each week. Ratings and reviews. Give us five stars. Tell us what you like and you know anything that you would like to hear on the podcast and we'll make sure to discuss it but if you can't get enough of us there you can also search for us on social media you just search weekly brewcast on twitter facebook instagram and youtube and also you can subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com but i had a fun time this week i thought we had some great guests again thanks to john mcclain matt weston and adam hey, listen, to me, listen to me you guys this is at the end of the podcast when you can actually take some action here i want to encourage you to go to twitter and hit up at mbw987 that I've ever once gotten a new follower out of the deal so go to twitter matt weston at mbw987 we got to make that happen for him guys you're better than that come on so make sure to go give us iTunes reviews and go follow Matt Weston on Twitter. But uh, thanks to all of our guests for joining us this week. And uh, for my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook, Dolores Cesano, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this weekend, always, always we're responsible. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 